The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered the house, did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she had heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place a hand on him. After he took him aside and away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. He said to him, Ephapha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Jesus was overwhelmed. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, as Josh mentioned earlier, we would love to give you one. You can grab one on the uh, table in the back there, take it home, keep it. Uh, if you're not familiar with a Bible, uh, I want to just orient you a little bit because we're going to be looking at several verses this morning, and I don't want you to get lost. Uh, if the Bible is an intimidating book for you, you maybe hear people referencing chapters and verses. Well, basically what it, what it means is it's almost like street addresses. It's ways to find particular passages of Scripture. And today, as I said, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7. The chapters are the big numbers in your Bible. And the verses are the little numbers. So if I refer to verse 26, then you'll look under the big seven for the little number 26 and so on. We heard the passage read, and here's what I think is the main idea of this passage. It's really two stories that Mark has stuck together. So I think it's, a, it's especially important when we're encountering this kind of thing to see what is the thread that holds it all together. And this is what I think is the main idea of Mark 7, 24 to 37. Jesus works in unexpected ways for unlikely people. And if you humble yourself, his mercy will more than meet your needs. Jesus works in unexpected ways for unlikely people. And if you humble yourself, his mercy will more than meet your needs. We're going to look at this in those two scenes that, that I mentioned. The, the first scene, we're going to see a desperate mom, and the second scene, 
we're going to see a disabled man, a desperate mom, and then a disabled man. First, let's look at the desperate mom. Verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep his presence secret. Tyre was a port city to the northwest of Galilee on the Mediterranean coast. Back in Mark 3, 8, actually, we learned that Jesus' fame had been spreading to far-flung places like this. But what's most significant about this trip to Tyre is that it's the only recorded time in Jesus' ministry that he actually leaves the territory of Israel. Which is to say that this chapter features Jesus moving from a discussion of unclean hands and unclean food to an excursion to an unclean place. And oh boy, was Tyre unclean. These people were ancient enemies of God's people. You can read in the scrolls of Isaiah and Ezekiel blistering denunciations of the Tyrians' arrogance and wickedness and idolatry. The Jewish historian Josephus in the first century described Tyrians as notoriously our most bitter enemies. One commentator goes so far as to say that Tyre represented, quote, the most extreme expression of paganism a Jew could expect to encounter. So the air is crackling with tension, culturally, religiously, as Jesus makes his way into the area. Verse 25, as soon as she heard about him. As soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. We've gone from unclean hands and food to an unclean place, and now on the ground, in the dirt before him, an unclean person. In fact, Matthew describes her as a Canaanite to evoke the kind of deep animosity that had seethed for centuries between her people and God's people. The woman represents everything Israel despises. This woman is the last kind of person that you would expect a rabbi of Yahweh to help. She's not just a Gentile coming to him. She's a woman. She also has a demonized daughter. That's three strikes against her already. Biblical scholar James Edwards puts it bluntly, of all the people who approach Jesus in the gospel of Mark, of all the people who approach Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this woman has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. But this most unlikely woman happens to be a distraught mom. The word in verse 25 for little daughter, little there doesn't mean young, it means precious. The, the word is pulsing with motherly affection. She's, she begs Jesus. The, the, the word means continually. She's pleading with him to somehow bring relief to her tormented girl. Friends, this is not a woman who is exploring her options. This is a woman who has run out of options. I'm reminded of Jairus. Remember from chapter 5, the president of the Jewish synagogue who begged Jesus to heal his daughter? Just think about the contrast. 
two different ends of the social spectrum. A Jewish father who leads the local synagogue, a pagan mom from a despised place. The ultimate insider and now the ultimate outsider. But the lives of both have converged, not on the social spectrum, but in the dirt before the feet of Jesus. So how does he, how does our compassionate, kind, tender, merciful Savior respond to this distraught woman's cry? Verse 27, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. So much for vacation Bible school, Jesus. Sweet Jesus, meek and mild. I mean, what do we make of this provocative retort? Well, the first thing we need to face and own is that it is provocative. Yes, commentators are quick to point out that the word Jesus uses for dogs is not referring to mangy street animals, but to household pets. But even granting that Jesus is almost surely talking about the family dog, the the puppy under the table, the statement is still shocking. So what is he saying? What, What is the Lord of mercy doing? Well, he's making an observation that is not racist, not sexist, but is theological. See, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, With rare exceptions, the Gentiles were always outsiders looking in on the people of God and the promises of God. So this is not, on the part of Jesus, insensitive. This is strategic. Jesus is deliberately pressing her with an uncomfortable, hard theological truth about the priority of Israel in the plan of God, and he's doing so to test her, to test her faith. In other words, he's not slamming the door shut in her face and locking it from the inside. But But he is shutting the door. He's even leaning a little bit of his weight against the door to see if she's gonna push through. And the strategy works. His sharp words only stimulate her faith as she pushes through the door. Verse 28 Yes, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So the only thing you thought Jesus' statement was startling, this is more so. The only thing more startling than his words is her reply. I mean, we sophisticated modern Western readers, we read this and we're kind of rooting for her to strike back. You know, how dare you, Jesus? But that instinct actually reveals more about us than it does her. There is no hint in verse 28 that this woman thinks she's been sinned against. She just says, Lord, I agree. I mean, we hear Jesus' words here and we recoil, but she is not recoiling. She's saying, Lord, yes, I agree. I have no right to your mercy. I don't deserve a seat at your table, but I can see that there's enough food on that table. 
and I believe that even the crumbs of your power will be enough to heal my girl. Do you realize that this unclean pagan woman in Mark's gospel is the first person to understand a parable? The first person to rightly understand and respond to a parable. The Pharisees, the crowds, the disciples all misunderstand his mission. She gets it right after hearing just one sentence in the form of a parable. And she gets it right because she inserts herself into it. In Rebecca McLaughlin's excellent book, which I've quoted before, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, she writes, quote, this Syrophoenician woman understands what the Pharisees could not. She knows she has no right to sit at Jesus' table, and it's precisely those who know they have no right that Jesus welcomes in. One reason I don't think Jesus intended here to slam the door in her face and lock it from the inside is because of a word he uses. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles carefully, because we miss things like this if we, if we don't. There's a word in verse 27 that functions like a crack in the door. It's the word first. Jesus doesn't say, let the children of Israel eat all they want and get away from the table. No, he simply notes the priority in redemptive history of the Messiah coming first for the Jews. First for the Jews. Not only for the Jews. And this mother sees that glimmer of hope streaming through the crack in the door and she pushes through. Yes, Jesus, yes, I know, Gentiles aren't fed first. We have to wait our turn, but even the dogs get some scraps and I'm right here. By the way, this is not the only time in Scripture when someone tells a king they don't deserve a seat at his table. I hope that at some point I can preach to you this story. It's one of my favorites in 2 Samuel 9 when Jonathan's son Mephibosheth from the enemy line of Saul, crippled in both of his feet, is invited to dine at King David's table and he bows down just like this woman so many centuries later and here's what he says to David. Who is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. We live in a time when some denominations are changing the lyrics to amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. A wretch? I mean, yeah, I, I make mistakes, I do some bad things, I'm not perfect, but a wretch? A dog? No. Friends, the king of heaven has always loved to subvert the expectations of the world by welcoming the unlikely, the undeserving, those who belong not at the table but beneath it. Well, how does Jesus re react to her boldness. Verse 29, then he told her, for such a reply you may go. 
the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then he told her, verse 29 again, for such a reply. Isn't that interesting? For such a reply, she's healed. Some believe that at this moment, what we're seeing is Jesus changing his mind, growing more tolerant because this woman has corrected his prejudice. But the sense of the verse is not, you have changed my mind, it's you have passed the test. And the reason you passed is because you didn't recoil. You kept pushing on the door to get through to the provision on the other side. Think about this with me, friends. There are two ways that this woman could have responded wrongly, and I think there are ways that we today can respond wrongly to Jesus. One, when we hear Jesus say something hard and unflattering about us, and if you read the Bible long enough, you'll hear some of those things. One wrong way to respond is to think that your sin is so small that you deserve a seat at the table. The other is to think your sin is so big that you refuse to even accept the crumbs he offers you. Both are ways to avoid Jesus. I know to many of you, this one sounds prideful and this one sounds humble. They're both prideful. Both are ways to avoid, your Jesus, uh, to avoid Jesus. One minimizes your sin. The other minimizes his grace. You can avoid Jesus Christ with a superiority complex and with an inferiority complex because both are finally focused on you and what you do or don't deserve. See, this is the danger of believing in any way that being welcomed by God is based on your behavior. Because if, you, if you're doing well and you're living up to your moral standards, then you will be tempted to respond to a retort from Jesus like this with something along the lines of, give me my seat. Give me the seat at the table that I've earned. Look at how I've been living. Or, if you're failing to live up to your moral standards, you will be tempted to respond, you're right, Lord, I'm so sorry for ever bothering you. I'll be on my way. Friend, when you see the beauty of a gospel where salvation is not by works, but by sheer grace, something will happen simultaneously. You will be humbled out of your pride and lifted out of your despair. It should be clear by now that one of the pivotal themes theologically in this scene and the next one is Gentile inclusion. Gentile inclusion. Ever since God called Abraham, he made it clear that the people of Israel were going to be a vehicle for worldwide blessing. I want you to see this foundational promise for yourselves. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, 
the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And ultimately, when the promised one came, when Abraham's descendant, Messiah Jesus, came, he had Gentiles, even Canaanite women, in his own family tree. Now turn to Galatians chapter 3. If, if we had the time, I, I could show you other places, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, other places where this theme of Gentile inclusion uh, raises its head in the Old Testament and is previewed for a coming age. But look at Galatians chapter 3. This was our call to worship. If you noticed at the beginning of the service, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in Galatia. He's reflecting on the promise that we just read in Genesis 12. And he writes, starting in Galatians 3, verse 5, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7, understand then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel. Not in Romans. Announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's a direct quote from Genesis 12:3, which we just read. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Messiah was always going to have enough bread for the nations. We'll see that even more clearly in the story next week. But don't miss that ever since the beginning and weaving through the centuries, God has been keeping his promises. If you're not a believer in this Jesus, if you feel a bit out of place, a bit like an outsider looking in on the people of God and even the, the things of God, then you need to realize that you have an advantage over this Syrophoenician woman. Do you realize that? You have an advantage over her because you don't have to wait for Jesus to journey to your town He's already lived and died and rose and is offering mercy to you if you will simply cast yourself at his feet and humbly receive it. You don't have to be. It's not like there are only two options, which we've seen in the last couple of weeks. It's not like you can only be a hypocritical Pharisee or a dull disciple. There's a third option. You can be like this woman. This morning, you can come to Jesus with gritty, gutsy faith and collapse into his arms. His arms are open, and he will not turn you away. If you come to him and collapse into his arms, he will catch you and never let go. A desperate mom. Number two, a disabled man. 
a disabled man. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. He's still in pagan territory. The Decapolis was a cluster of 10 independent Gentile towns. We actually made our way there ourselves. Do you remember our little trip to the Decapolis back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed Legion, the demonized man? Well, word has since spread about this healer, this rabbi and what he can do. Verse 32, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So now suddenly, here in verse 32, thrust into the foreground of of our story and our scene is a severely disabled individual. Maybe he's had a stroke. Maybe he's been deaf and mostly mute since birth. We don't know. But however he reached this condition, what's clear is that in the ancient world, it was not a favorable place for this condition. The ancient world was a brutal, harsh place for persons like this. Well, how does Jesus respond to the request? Verse 33, after he took him aside, away from the crowd, pause there. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't work the wonder in front of everyone. Maybe this is his way of communicating. This is not for your entertainment. I'm not here to just wow you with some kind of parlor trick. Now, this is a man who is made in the image of God and is afflicted And therefore, he's going to get my attention. He and I will be right back. It's now a private setting, middle of verse 33. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. This story only appears in Mark's gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says it's perhaps the most unusual of all the miracles. I mean, seriously, why, we have to ask, why is this healing strategy so elaborate? We know Jesus can do better. Like, why is this so involved in weird when he could have just spoken the word and it would have been done? Well, Because if Jesus had treated this man just like an ordinary sufferer and walked up to him and said, be healed, the man wouldn't have heard him. He's deaf. He can barely talk. And so Jesus accommodates to his struggle and essentially communicates with him in sign language, touches his ears, his tongue, looks up to heaven to communicate this is happening by the power of God. And he does the same today. He doesn't operate with a one-size-fits-all strategy because he doesn't just see our needs. He sees us. We saw this back in chapter 1, if you remember. The first miracle Mark recorded. Remember when Jesus shouted down and cast out the demon in the synagogue? And then in the very next scene, he's kneeling by a bedside, taking a frail old woman by the hand and displaying the tenderest care. 
Two different situations, two different emergencies, two different needs, two different approaches. This is one reason why Jesus Christ is the most compelling figure in human history, because he defies easy categorization. He doesn't operate with one gear in only one speed. We should be really careful. We thought about this back in chapter 1, but this is another good reminder. We should be careful not to assume that just because he's worked in one particular way in one situation that he's going to do so again. Oh, I saw him do this for so-and-so. I know he's going to do it for you. Maybe, maybe not. Beloved, don't assume that you always know what Jesus needs to be doing. That you know what he needs to be doing in your life, or in the life of someone you love. You don't know. You don't know. You weren't meant to. And because he's unpredictable, because he's versatile, because we can't predict his every maneuver and strategy in every situation, what that means is that oftentimes he's going to do things that don't make immediate sense to us. And again, that's okay. That's actually a good thing because if he did everything your way, he wouldn't be God. He'd be you. Verse 35, at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Literally, Mark says, the chain of his tongue was broken. Oh, friends, this has now become more than just a healing. This is a biblical echo. This is why our scripture reading earlier was from Isaiah chapter 35. Because 700 years before this scene, the prophet Isaiah forecasted a day when God himself would come in saving power and bring about a new creation. Isaiah 35 verse Listen to these words. You can also see them in your service guide. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And what will be the result? Isaiah 35 verse 5. Then, after God comes, will the, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. That word for mute shows up only one other time in your Bible in Mark 7 to describe this man Jesus heals. See, Mark is reporting history with an ear to prophecy, and he's alerting us that God has finally come, just as he's promised, and there's evidence everywhere to be seen and heard and sung. Verse 36, Jesus then commands them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. He, for, he forbids them from spreading the news lest they perpetuate a misconception about who he is. Now, we're used to this when he's interacting with Jewish audiences because they were prone to think, to want, to expect a political Messiah. But this is the first time he does this with a Gentile audience. 
And I think that's not only because his fame is really starting to spread, but also because the danger for Gentiles was not wanting a political Messiah, but seeing him as merely a wonder worker. But the more he hushes the people, the more they can't contain themselves. The sobering question for us here, beloved, is the same thing we saw earlier in chapter 1 with the healed leper. Jesus commands them to tell nobody, and yet they tell everybody. Meanwhile, Jesus has commanded us to tell everybody about him. And yet, how often do we tell nobody? The good news, though, believer, is that God has opened your ears to be able to hear the truth, and he has loosened your tongue to be able to speak it. Nothing is impossible for him to accomplish through you if you step out in faith. And as we say in our church covenant, leave the results to God. Verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Can't you just feel the tension and the contrast while the Israel's leaders, the religious PhDs, are doing nothing well. The conclusion here is that Jesus is doing everything well. Literally, the phrase is, he has made everything good, which is yet another biblical echo, this time to the very first page. Sounding forth from Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And here, so many centuries later, God himself has arrived. The Lord of heaven has come to earth and is previewing the new creation. Before we move on from this beautiful phrase, he has done everything well, just take a moment to reflect on how it's proven true in your life. How has God done all things well for you? How has he treated you better than you deserve with, with a love that is not based on how you're doing, a love that's not ba- that doesn't rise and fall, ebb and flow, grow hot and cold based on your actions or your attitudes, but with an immovable affection that says, I love you, period. Not I love you, comma, I love you, comma, if only, but I love you, period. I love you completely. I couldn't love you any more. Maybe as you reflect on this phrase, he has done all things well, and and you try to think about how that's showed up and played out in your life. You, You think of prayers that he's answered. Maybe you think of prayers that he's not answered. Maybe he's done all things well for you by providing certain things. Maybe he's done all things well for you by withholding certain things so that you would experience him more deeply. Whatever your circumstances, he has done all things well for you. It's also worth looking in the mirror further and, and looking at the motives of our heart and asking ourselves, okay, in, 
in what way, in what way am I living so that people will look at me and say, she has done all things well. He has done all things well. Rather than looking at me and, th- and concluding, well, the, the, what's clear there is that Christ has done all things well. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between your everyday world being a stage for you and for you to become the stage for Jesus. Is your everyday world the stage on which you stand so that people say, he, she has done everything well, or are you the stage that Jesus stands on so that people see him and as he says in the, the Sermon on the Mount, they see your good works, but they give praise to your Father in heaven. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I just, I just have to wonder when we look at a phrase like this, he has done all things well. Do you agree? Do you dispute, I'm, I'm just curious, do you dispute that Jesus has done all things well? If so, what specifically do you deny? Where specifically has he failed? If not, if, if, you're, if you're willing to kind of say, yeah, I like Jesus, he's done all things well, then my question for you is, well, then why don't you worship him? If he's done all things well, then why don't you give your heart and your life to him? Well, in conclusion, as we think about what Mark's doing here by stitching together these two stories, we we see that Jesus works in ways we don't expect. He works for people we don't expect. But if, if we're desperate, if we're desperate, his mercy will be more than enough for us. But there is no place at the table. There is no place at the table for the proud. If you think you deserve a spot, you won't get one. But as Tim Keller points out, here is the great irony and paradox of the gospel. Only if you admit you are a dog under the table can you become a child at the table. And the reason Oh, the reason, friends, that this kind of undeserved promotion can happen for you is because of the undeserved demotion that happened to Jesus. You see, the only way for a dog like us to be treated like God's child is for God's child, his only begotten son, to be treated like a dog. I think that's why Mark tells us that before Jesus heals the disabled man, He sighs. Did you notice that? He sighs. Mark doesn't include needless details. Jesus sighs. In the the Bible, this doesn't refer to mild annoyance. This refers to deep sadness. This is a groan of, of deep disturbance, even anger. It's the sigh of a man of sorrows who knows that the only way he'll be able to banish groaning and sighing from his people is to take our groans and sighs onto himself. Here is a Savior, friends, who counted what it would cost him to conquer the curse. He will have to be treated like a dog 
He will have to be treated like an outsider. He will have to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will have to absorb the wrath that we deserved so that our sorrow and sighing would flee away. And sure enough, that's how Isaiah 35 ends. Look back at the very bottom of page 7 of your service guide. How does it end? Verse 10. They, that is the redeemed, will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And what? Sorrow and sighing will flee away. These people in these Gentile cities said Jesus had done all things well, but they had no idea, did they? They had no idea that he would go on to do the ultimate thing well and die in the place of sinners and rise again to resurrection life. And they also had no idea of what we know. That one day he's going to split the skies and return not just to do all things well, but to make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who sees, who welcomes, who comes for the outcasts. And you bring them in and give them, you give us a seat at your table. Lord, help us not to run away from our unworthiness. Help us to admit it and help us to take you at your word when you say that if anyone comes to you, you will not ever cast them out. We thank you for your love and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.